This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And my name is Frank Ray. I am from Sleepy Hollow, New York. The Headless Horseman. Bod Green, Headless Horseman, Sleepy Hollow. All righty, Frank, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. It's been quite difficult to get a hold of you. You are a busy man. Well, glad you're here now. Let's start with getting to know you. Could you tell our audience what do you do? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's definitely a privilege to be here talking with you. So I currently work at Microsoft. I lead the Hyperscale Network Connectivity Team. And that's a completely made up name that I came up with, but my team, they're the business leads for Microsoft's global network infrastructure. So we look after all things from our fiber infrastructure to our optical network, our wide area network, all of our regional networks for our data centers, as well as our edge platform capacity plans, et cetera. Wonderful. So now your title on LinkedIn is partner slash GM. Could you expand on what does that mean versus just leading a team? How do you end up being a partner in Microsoft. (laughs) It's a lot of work and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Now, so Microsoft, it's a very large organization. So there's a number of levels that you go through. So the partner or general manager is a business lead within Microsoft that owns a portion of the Microsoft business. In my case, it's the underlying network infrastructure business that I own. So I look after the infrastructure P&L and how we impact gross margin for Azure and deliver on the capacity to support our global cloud business. So you've been with Microsoft for almost going on 11 years now. Could you expand on your journey as to how you got to where you're at in your career? Wow, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I was invited to come over and speak with some folks at Microsoft because many of the folks that recruited me to come over had been customers of mine in a previous life. So prior to joining Microsoft, I spent 13 years in Europe and I helped with myself and a few other people. We started an internet service provider, a wholesale transit provider called Tiskly International Network or TNET, AS3257. We're still all very proud of that ASN. And so Microsoft- You know you're a founder when you know the ASN, like off the top of your head, like decades after that company has- You know you're a, a tech nerd when you know the ASN number. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that that wasn't a pin for something- Somewhere in my portfolio, but oh my god, anyone finds now. a Frank Ray debit card on the street, <laughs> look up yes, just know that it will be changed number now. <laughs> yeah, so I would say, like, the little over 10 years that I've been here now, I originally was asked to come in and essentially change Microsoft's acquisition strategy. So when I joined the company, we were very much a enterprise consumer, I would say, of bandwidth services, and the goal was to evolve that into a wholesale customer and eventually the investor and enabler role that we play today. And so I'd say just as far as what got me here, a lot of learning, not being afraid to make mistakes or take positions on things. And when they didn't work, own up to them and then apply those learnings going forward and and do it better the next time. You need to be, in my opinion, prepared to make mistakes. I want to lead in with getting to know you a little bit deeper. You have a very interesting background, politics and history as a major out of University of West London and then philosophy and law. And now in technology. I was, I was destined to build networks. Not no, no doubt. With that, no doubt. With that background. Is, is, yeah. <laughs> clearly, this is how, that, that's what you wanted from a very young age. You wanted to. Yes, yes, yes. Take yeah. us back yeah. in time. Where did you grow up? 
Let's start with that. So I grew up in a town at the time. It was called North Terrytown, New York. It's now called Sleepy Hollow because that's where Washington Irving lived and where he wrote the Headless Horseman, Legend of Sleepy Hollow story. So the local high school is they are the horsemen. So Sleepy Hollow High School, their mascot is the horsemen. They've really leaned into that. They even changed the count, town colors to orange and black. Like they're leaning in heavy on this is, the Sleepy uh, this Hollow. Is where, if anybody wants to hang out for Halloween, I imagine Halloween is the biggest holiday in uh, There is. Sleepy they Hollow. have a haunted hayride and everything. They have a haunted hayride. They really lean into the Sleepy Hollow roots, which is great. And they should. It's not everywhere that you have kind of a story that at least everybody in the U.S. knows and talks about. So the only time you'd want to live in a ghost town. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I grew up in Sleepy Hollow, middle-class upbringing, played a lot of sports. I got into politics because my father was actually the mayor of the town. And he was one of the people that helped push the change to Sleepy Hollow at oh some point, I think, I think, if I recall correctly. So originally, I kind of thought I was going to maybe be a doctor. The usual stuff when you're a young kid. Oh, only the cool things, right? The doctors or the lawyers and whatnot. And then I did my first biology course in college. And I was like, yeah, this is not really for me. But I was always interested in politics and political science and things like that. So do you have recollections of like your father's campaigns? And Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. I remember going around handing out pamphlets and being at the wherever his campaign headquarters was when all the votes were coming in. Like, I remember all that. My friends used to call me MK. They used to call me mayor's kid. And they were like, just park wherever. You're the mayor's kid. You can do whatever you want, right? But uh, yeah, two very loving parents. They worked very hard. They instilled a, a very strong work ethic in me. My mother was the head of pediatrics for the nursing part of the local hospital for a better part of 40 years. She'd leave the house before I was even awake. And my father ran his own business. He had his own insurance agency in town and he worked a lot. His family were immigrants from Spain. He didn't even speak English until he was like four or five years old. But he finished high school. He didn't even go to college. He went to the Navy right after high school. He was stationed outside of Havana during the Bay of Pigs time frame in the oh, 60s. Man. And after that, he got his insurance certification or his license, whatever you would call that. And he started his own business. And my sister runs that business now, actually still. So it's still going. So if you need insurance in right. Sleepy Hollow or Westchester, greater New York, Ray Insurance. We usually, we usually say this in non-commercial podcasts. In this particular case, it's so heartwarming. I love it. I think anybody <laughs> that is in a Sleepy yeah, Hollow area that needs insurance, that is Nomad Futurist certified insurance broker that's in Sleepy it. Hollow. Laura Ray Ionarelli. Ray Insurance Agency. They will take good care of you. They take care of all of my insurance needs. This podcast uh, sponsored by. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my parents had just worked very hard and tried to instill strong values like work ethic and respect. So I started working very early. I remember very clearly my mother saying to me like, hey, when you're in school, your job is to go to school and to get good grades. But in the summertime, if you want a slice of pizza, you better have some money. So you better get to work, right? So I think I started working when I was like nine or so years old. And even before that, just shoveling snow, which I don't see anybody really. I don't know if people do that anymore. But Well, that's because it doesn't snow anymore. That's a, yeah, this yeah. is true. This is true. Poor kids today. They don't have the luxury. of <laughs> They don't know the joy of a snow day anymore. Now they have to right. go and do remote school. My kids actually had uh, school canceled at the beginning of the year this year because it was too hot, which oh I had gosh. never heard before. They had a heat day. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. But yeah, so I would go to school and work in the summertime, many times two jobs, a camp counselor during the day and worked as a busboy and waiter in restaurants, like all the things that you do when you're young and want to try and earn some money. And thankfully I worked in a place, I lived in, in Sleepy Hollow, I could just ride my bike everywhere, right? And I wasn't really one of those places like now where my wife and I live, it's if you don't have a car, 
So it's a little tougher for our kids. Like if you know, they don't have a driver's license, you're driving everybody around. So, and then I ended up going off to college. My singular plan was to go to West Point. I was going to go to West Point and I was going to go and start a, an army career. And Does that stem I, from your father's experience in the Navy? I think so. Yeah. I think he would have much rather have me gone to Annapolis. I got accepted to both, but I really wanted to go to West Point. And so I went through the entire process. I went to baseball camp. I played baseball a lot growing up and in school, played at Chase Stadium twice as an avid Yankees fan, which was okay. That's the one thing I'm disappointed you at. <laughs> disappointed yeah. You at. Right. yeah. No worries. Yeah. So I got accepted to go to West Point after going through the entire process. And two weeks after my acceptance, I got a letter from the Department of Defense saying that I was disqualified because my uncorrected vision was too far below the military limit, which I had gotten an eye exam. So you would have thought, well, why would they accept me and then tell me no? So like, I didn't know what was going on, but I, then I got a letter from West Point where they said that they were going to put a waiver in for me because I was the valedictorian of my high school. And I had a pretty good run when I was a kid for some things. And so they really wanted that me humble, to go. What a humble brag that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valedictorian <laughs> of the class of, I don't know, 95? A long know. time ago. 93. 93, <laughs> oh, 93, actually. We just had our 30-year anniversary. So I waited. They sent me a letter saying that they were going to put in a waiver because they really wanted me to come. And I waited four weeks. And at the end of the four weeks, I got a call from the surgeon at West Point saying that my waiver request was rejected. And if I wanted to go, I would have to go have the corrective surgery and then come back a year later and do it all over again. And at that point, I was like, yeah, no, you had your chance. Like, I, I'm not going to do all of that. And I've just never been comfortable. I've, I have very bad vision, but I've just never been comfortable of like somebody touching something and then messing it up even more. Like, I'll just live with this. I've lived with it long enough. But I'll never forget my dad. I was very polite on the phone where he said, I was like, okay, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity and, and blah, blah, blah. And I just I tried to say the, the, the right things. So my dad gets on the phone. He's like, what's wrong with you people? The kid can hit a 95 mile an hour fastball, but he can't shoot a gun. And then he hung up. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm glad that was you that said that and not me. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I had applied to a bunch of other schools that I had gotten accepted to, but I just, I didn't reply because I was really just tunnel vision on going to West Point. And it was at that time that my mother put her hand on my shoulder and was like, don't worry, I sent a deposit to Binghamton just in case. Because that's what mothers do, right? They take care of their kids and they look at the angles that you don't look at when you're a little kid. So that's how I ended up going and landing at Binghamton, which was a great SUNY school, one of the best schools in the SUNY system, but certainly was not on my radar. I don't even know how my mom did that. I never applied. I don't know how that happened, actually. I, I think I have to ask her how you did that because I'm looking at our kids and what we have to go through to get them into college and the letters and the supplementals and the papers or whatever. Like, I just don't know how. That was back in the day when you could call in a favor. I think so. I think so. <laughs> What's interesting is Binghamton was actually my backup also because yeah, it oh, had a big, it was a big engineering Yeah, see, uh, that's why I knew I liked on, you, on Notwithstanding the fact that I'm a Mets fan. Yeah, yeah. No, the only one of us have played at Chase Stadium, so I guess <laughs> yeah, it can't be that yeah. bad. I have a cool picture somewhere, but we're in the middle of a renovation. So I don't know if I can find it on the slide, but I have a red. I hit a triple off the 353 sign in left field. And so there's a picture of me looking in the catchers looking up and the umpires looking up and whatnot. So yeah, anyway, so I'm just a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. So first of all, right after all of that happened, a couple of weeks later, I think I ended up meeting my current wife and she was going to Binghamton. So we fell in love and then there's this whole long story about the two of us, which I'm very proud of, but it's not really part of the technical story. So I'll save her from getting into that detail. 
And then I just remember at one point I had moved to Germany in 1999 and there was a point where I was watching the news and the whole Iraq war was going on. And it kind of just hit me that, wow, like if I had gone to West Point, I would have still been within my five years of active duty. I may very well have been in that war. Right. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm not really interested in war. So that's probably a good thing that that happened. Right. So. It's amazing to yeah. look back on it and realize that you are you for the reason, the things that happened to you when at the yeah. time it feels like, oh my God, I can't believe I had this vision of what my life was going to be like. And I feel like uh, disappointed for some reason. And having that attitude only comes with experience, right? It's impossible yeah. to know ahead of time that everything yeah. happens for a reason because it hasn't happened yet. I must say I was very blessed growing up, right? I had two parents that loved each other, that stayed together and supported their kids and instilled us with really good values. And I- And put I, deposits down at schools we didn't apply to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and again, I think I was just very blessed that I had a fair amount of success when I was younger, right? And I'm captain of the baseball team and da 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 and all these different things. Like, and I, yes, I, I had to put that work in, but looking back, things went well for me when I look at other kids and people getting sick and I didn't have to deal with asthma and whatever the case may be and all the horrible things that happen to people on a daily basis. So that not getting into West Point, that really rocked my world at the time. That was the first time that I was kind of told, no, you're not good enough, right? And it really, so being in Binghamton, like my first year didn't go very well. <laughs> when you're somewhere that you don't think you're supposed to be, your head and your heart aren't in it. I guess one of the things that I've taken away from all of that and I guess if we're talking about who I may be blessed to be listening to this, just make sure you do things that you are passionate about, not necessarily whether that's the thing that's going to make you a lot of money or do this or do that. Like, it's really true that they say, if you do something you love, you won't work a day in your life. So if you just do things for the sake of doing them and your heart and your head are not in them, you're never really going to be the best at whatever it is that you're trying to do. And I think that's really true across the board, whether it's the work you do in your relationships as a parent or a sibling or whatnot. So, yeah, it's an incredibly important point. Again, it's impossible to know until you experience it, which is why we're blessed to have this platform to try to like instill some of these lessons, which inevitably the people that are listening to this are going to have to learn on their own anyway, yeah. but at yeah. least they'll know what to look out for. But I think you're also touching on this idea that you could find your passion in places that you might not think they exist, right? Yeah. So you didn't feel like you wanted to be in Binghamton because that wasn't what your plan was. So you kind of struggled that first year when if you just let yourself be open to saying, what do I want? And I, okay, whether I'm in Binghamton or in West Point or whether I'm in Germany or not, I could still be frank. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it also helped me with this decision to go to Germany, right? People have asked me, like, well, why did you go to Germany? And so I just felt like, actually, I remember very, very explicitly, like the day before I was leaving, my mother's friend came to our house. And she also was like, well, why do you have to go there? Why do you have to leave? And I was like, well, if something doesn't work, I can always come back. But you never have the opportunity to go back if you don't ever leave and take a chance, right? Was that during college or was it after college? Was no, it was after college. So I got out of college and my first job was working with my brother-in-law who had his own contracting business at the time. And at the time, I needed your girlfriend's brother. No, husband. my sister's husband. Sister's yes, husband. I have three older sisters. They're 10, 8, and oh 6 years old. Is he busy days in the Ray household? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I have five daughters. And so I'm just surrounded. That's why I have Cooper. 
as I right. said to my wife when she said, we're going to get a dog. It's whatever animal the, comes in, for, for those into not, our for house, those not, we'll have. For those not realizing, because they didn't see the, the pre-show, Cooper oh, is right. Frank's dog. Yes, Cooper is my dog. He usually jumps on my lap and he, he takes parts in meetings. He has his own Microsoft badge, so he's allowed to go in any Microsoft office. So he comes into the office with me and keeps me company. And probably um, owns several corners of that office. <laughs> So I think he's, he may have marked a corner or two when I wasn't looking, but, um, yeah. So I was working with my brother-in-law and I needed a job. I needed money. I got back from school. I was living at home. My parents were like, great, you can stay here for a little while, but you better get a job. There's nothing free. So again, the same thing they told me when I was younger still applied. Right. So while I was trying to figure out what am I going to do with this philosophy, politics, and law degree that probably like only 10 people have. I don't think they even have that anymore at Binghamton. I started working with my brother-in-law as a contractor. And so I'm working and, and they'd be like, hey, Lightning, can you go get this? Hey, Lightning. They kept calling me Lightning. And I go to my brother-in-law like, why are they calling me Lightning? He goes, yeah, because you're like Lightning. You never hit in the same place twice with the hammer. And so they were like, you're done with that. You're just on demo duty. And that's when I was like, okay, I, I realize now that this is probably not my calling, but I also moved furniture in college. I was an ocean lifeguard for a couple of years down in the Jersey shore, Wildwood Crest, shout out to Wildwood Crest Beach Patrol. So I've done a bunch of different things, certainly things that have showed me that it was good that I got a college degree, even if it's this philosophy of politics and law degree. And then I remember a friend of mine called me, a guy that I graduated high school with, and he was working at a company called Infonet, Infonet Services. So they were back in the 90s. They did a lot of telecom connectivity. I think they ultimately got bought by BT at some point, but they primarily did like global VPN type of connections and network services for customers and primarily connecting airports and doing air traffic control. And so I ended up, he's like, we need somebody. Maybe if you don't have a job yet, maybe you can come down and interview. So I actually went down there and interviewed for that job and I got the job and I just basically did a lot of quoting on things, but that's what started to expose me to the networking space and the idea of building things and doing work in these far flung places and creating things that people are then using that help facilitate what they're doing. And that was um, your first exposure to technology at all. That was my first, well, I mean, my dad was huge into computers. So we always had computer, you know, we had like the, even the big five and a half inch floppy disks or five and a quarter, whatever it was, the big floppy disk, the, the monitor that was either green or amber and five, that kind of stuff. It's five and yeah. a quarter, three and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Who uses those anymore? You know? I installed Windows for the first time. Uh, it was yeah. off of 32, three and a half inch floppy disks. Wow. You have to yeah. like move it one, one after the other. Yeah. So yeah, and he had one of those printers that you had to tear the ends off because they would go dot around matrix. in the little, yeah, dot the dot matrix. matrix one. So you had to like peel off the edges. No, so there was always technology in our house, but I was busy on my bike and playing baseball and sports and whatnot. So yeah, that's where I started to really get into technology and networking and doing a lot of international work. And so, but after a while, I just remember sitting in the train thinking, wow, is this going to be the next 40 years of my life where I'm just going to be in this train commuting into the city every day? You'd see sometimes like these old guys in the train and what I'm like, am I going to be that old guy and this still going in the train like when I'm 70 years old? And then I had an opportunity to go move to Germany. And so I took it and I ended up quitting my job, packed two suitcases. How does that come up? Does somebody call you because they worked with you at Infonet? Yeah. Is it? Yeah, there was a colleague in Frankfurt and 
had some room in the apartment. And so it's like, okay, let me, can I try and figure this out? And so packed two suitcases, bought a one-way ticket and said, I got 90 days to learn German, find a job and see what happens. And my first job was actually playing baseball. Well, my first job was really to learn German. So I signed up for a German intensive course, four hours a day, four days a week that I remember vividly the first day sitting down and the teacher comes in and is like, hello, ich heiße so and so. And I'm like, whoa, 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 I don't speak German. Why are you speaking? Never did the guy speak any English at all. So the whole thing was fully immersive for like, day one. It was like and, my grandmother. Uh, it was like my grandmother with Yiddish. She just always assumed that I spoke Yiddish. But eventually, you know what she's talking about. She's yeah. based on inflection of the voice more than anything else. So my first job was to learn German. And I remember it was part of a, it was like a language school. And they were using a building that was used to be part of the Air Force Base in Frankfurt, where in the town I was. So I moved first. So I lived mainly most of my time in Frankfurt. But for the first year I was there, I lived in a town called Wiesbaden, which is about 45 minutes west of Frankfurt. And so I would walk by, but to go walk to the class, I passed by the sports complex that was part of the Air Force base that had a baseball field. And I saw these guys playing baseball and I was like, huh, I play baseball. Let me go talk to these folks. And so they were like, oh, you're American. You can definitely play with us. We, we need <laughs> and so, so are there any Germans in the Hall of Fame? I'm trying to think of the, <laughs> the one German baseball player. There was a guy, I think that came up with the twins. That was a German guy. But the Dutch are very good at baseball. That's why you see a lot of the people from Aruba and Curacao and whatnot. So I started playing baseball there and so like professionally. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I, it was, you were paid it, to play. It wasn't directly. No, I didn't accept. No, I just told them I didn't want to get paid to play because I needed to work. I needed to do other things. So right. the first thing I said was, okay, look, don't pay me, just pay for everything. Like, I don't want to have to pay, pay for my uniform or whatnot. You pay my uniform, you pay my club fee. Like you just pay everything for me and I'll play. And they were like, yeah, sure. That's a good deal. Did you, you win know, the title? Said, no, we didn't win. We didn't win a title. <laughs> but what is baseball called in German? Baseball. Just, just <laughs> Isn't there like a German word for it? No, like, they no, stole no, it no. from us. You can't. Yeah. You can't. I mean, that's it's just. And yeah, so I was playing baseball, and then like my ninety day was coming up, and so the head the of visa, the club, that's the visa, the visa ninety, 90 day. day. Yeah, the first ninety days of the visa came up, and I still hadn't gotten a job because you kind of needed. There was a little bit of a catch-22 about having some visa and then getting a job, but you needed a job to get the visa. And in any case, I started also coaching the kids. So we had the men, like the, the first team, and then we also had what we would call a little league team at the club. And so I started coaching the kids. And so the head of the club came with me to the visa office and said, he's coaching and working for us. You need to extend his visa. And so they we extended it another 90 days so that I what could What a great stay. way to learn German. To coach yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be yeah. crazy. <laughs> and so then the kids, the kids would talk to me and then I would talk to them in English. And so the parents loved it because the kids then could learn English and whatever else. And so that was like my first job. So I got my visa extended. And then shortly thereafter, the head of the club was like, so what are you even doing here? Like, what do you do? <laughs> and, and I told him about Infonet and he goes, I have a buddy of mine. He has an ISP that he's a German ISP, maybe they're doing something. And so he put me in contact with them and I ended up going down and interviewing and they were looking to expand and do some stuff in the United States. And they were like, yeah, you'd be, you'd be a good fit. So I ended up getting a job there, which was funny because when I was in New York, all of my work was international. And when I started in Frankfurt, all of my work was back in the US. Yeah, right. And I remember being on the phone and people saying, wow, you're 
your English is really good for a German person. And I was like, I'm like, well, thank you. I'm technically from New York, but most people in New York don't speak English either. So thank you. I'll take the compliment. Um, and so that's what I started to do. And then some of the folks that were working in that German ISP, we had got bought by a Dutch ISP. And then those were the crazy days, right? That was around two, the year 2000. And so like all the crazy dot-com stuff was happening. And so the German ISP got bought by a Dutch ISP that then all got bought by this Italian ISP. And it was during this time that we said, we have this big network and we do this stuff. Like we think there's a bigger international business here, right? And at that time it was still spending a thousand dollars per megabit per second for those that are not up on the lingo. Which is now, I think the people come up to me asking for a nickel. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. People, like people that work at organizations like Frank's expect it to be, you pay them to take bandwidth. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm not always proud of some of the things that I've turned well, that's, that's because yeah. you've come from that role, right? So you could put yourself yeah. in the position of the person bought, like selling to Microsoft right now and be like, hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, I hate, sucks to be you. Yeah. You want to sell to Walmart. It's not as, yeah. not as, it's a crack, cracked up to me. Yeah. yeah. So we had this idea that we have like a bigger business that could be international and everybody was still paying boatloads of money to the likes of Verizon and AT&T and not really getting the best of service in any case. And so we started this wholesale transit provider that we pitched to the board in the Netherlands. And they're like, yeah, this is good. And they had just hired this American guy to be the CEO. And he's like, oh, I really like that idea. Let's go and do that. And so we started this, at the time, the company was called World Online. And then we had this World Online International. And then a couple of months later, this Italian ISP that nobody had ever heard of called Tiscali bought this company. And it was kind of like the mom and pop grocery store buying Walmart. And so we flew down to Sardinia and made the same exact pitch. And he's like, yeah, okay, I like it. Here's $2 million. You have six months. Don't mess it up. And With so, all the international folks I've heard, the only person that even gets a tinge of an accent is the Sardinian. <laughs> They're not Italians. They are Sardinians. So yeah. So that's when we started Tiscali International Network. And which we grew to be the fifth largest wholesale IP backbone in the world when we sold it in 2011, I think it was. According to your LinkedIn, it happened in that October 2010. Yeah. October 2010. Yeah. There you yeah. go. That was a long time ago, Philip. Yeah. Oh my God. Remember everything. It's not really that long ago. That's the thing that's so crazy about it. It feels no, like an eternity. It, so I guess it's funny. So my kids still ask me what I do. They don't understand. And when people ask me what I do, I basically tell people I'm a plumber, and which my wife just hates. She just is so annoyed by that statement. She always smacks me every time I say it. And she's like, you're not a plumber. Just tell them what you do. You'd be a lot fiber. more useful, Frank, if you were a plumber in this house. But listen, I, first of all, like... My kids just don't, like, they haven't had that experience, so they don't, like, they get it. They get the cable and subsea, and, like, they kind of get it, but they don't really get it. And I really, truly kind of believe that in our business, we are plumbers, which is a very noble profession. But think about it, Philip. Nobody cares what you do or knows what you've done or even wants to talk to you unless something is broken. And There's that, no doubt. for me, very it's, much sounds like a plumber, right? Like it's the, look, it's it's data and not water. It's exactly the same form factor. It still goes through tubes. It goes through it. conduits. It's, exactly, it's the same. Exactly. You know? so, so it I, is. Totally, it's, I totally get it. And if only there was a foundation that existed whose job it was to demystify the world of digital infrastructure. Well, somebody should start that one day. But yeah, it's a perfect metaphor. But at the same time, I think people also understand plumbing to be the toilet um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? and stuff. Sure. So, right. Yes, I'm a digital plumber. There you go. <laughs> I'm a, digi I, I, I'm a digital I, I, plumber. 
I think you should take just a half minute to describe what you do. Oh, what do I do? That's a good question. Explain it like you're talking boss to your kids. asks me that all the time. <laughs> no. What are you talking about, boss? I'm a partner at Microsoft. You so work what for I, me. What do I do? That's a, there's a lot of things I do. Let me see what's the best way to explain this. What impact does what you do have on Microsoft in a way that people can understand? Like they're using something with Microsoft, presumably in their world, and it's enabled yeah, so, by what you do. Yeah, 100%. So just think about when you're on a Teams call or you want to check your Outlook.com email account. You want to upload something to OneDrive or you need to access your virtual machine, your storage accounts or whatnot. The network that my team designs, plans and builds is the underlying tubes that bring your bits from wherever they are to wherever you need them and want them to be at any time, any place, any amount. So if you have the Teams app, which I highly recommend everybody downloads for your phone. Oh, for goodness if you have, sake. If you have the Teams app and you are on vacation in, in Australia and your boss tries to call you from New York, it will ride over our network. It will ride over the network that my team plans and builds. I think that's incredibly useful. I also would recommend you declining to accept that call. Yes. <laughs> yes, I would highly recommend a stronger conversation with your manager before you go on vacation so that they know to not actually call you. That's good. That's just good. Okay. So, so Frank Ray has ruined everyone's vacations. That's what I got out of that. <laughs> nice. That wouldn't be the first. I do that to my wife. But it all is the time, insured. So why not, why not right. share the love? Right. Right. <laughs> Frank, how do you keep up with technology? I mean, there's been a, a lot of change and the sector is evolving crazy dramatically over the last two and a half, three years. How do you keep up with the technology stack? And uh, what are some of the cool tech that you're looking at on a go forward basis? There's really no trick for me. It's just a lot of reading. You have to be curious, right? Well, if you're not, then it's not something you're passionate about, right? The yeah, nice thing exactly, about it right? is if you're interested in it, then yeah. you're going to want to research it. So that's the people that like supercars and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. They're just in that world. You know, a lot of reading, trial and error, just testing things out yourselves. There's lots of great tools available today for people to run, try out your own, to create your own cloud accounts and, and open up and start cloud services and things like that. Just reading things, being curious, that's the best way. And being very open to listening to other people. You just got to listen more and talk less, right? Which is something I know I'm not good at. Well, Philip will tell you, I'm just terrible at it. But You and me both. That's what we get along. <laughs> Through your experiences on the sales side and now transitioning to designing networks and all that, if you had to look at some of the challenges that you wish you had known now in terms of the way you approach these things. You talk about trial and error and not focusing on analysis paralysis. Can you speak to maybe a difficult experience that was a teachable moment for you that changed the way you approach what you do? Yeah, I'll tell a story about my former manager who just retired after 33 years at Microsoft. So one of the first things that I needed to do, what I, like I said before, what I was asked to do was kind of change our acquisition strategy. And so one of my first big projects was our Morea cable. So this transatlantic subsea cable between Virginia Beach and Bilbao that we built together with Meta or Facebook at the time. 
So we made some investments in some of this fiber, and I think I had some central tenants around these investments, right? The network capacity can help the cloud be more fungible, right? So if you have a capacity constraint in one place, you can ship bits over the network and fulfill those capacity gaps versus brute force server capacity installations. Also that these investments had their own intrinsic value, so we could use them if we needed to maybe move things around with other people. But these things, they were just very new at the time and they were still very much theoretical, right? And so my old boss, he single-handedly killed this investment program and said, just got everybody on board that we should not be doing these investments. And I still have some of the scars on the back from those days, but then COVID hit and we had a situation where there was a capacity constraint in Europe to support teams. So everything is now remote. We're full on in the throngs of COVID and everybody is working from home and all the schools and whatever else. And we didn't have enough capacity at the time in Europe to full on get teams up onboarded to where it needed to be. And so there was a very, very short window where there was a fair number of Teams calls in Europe that were getting hosted out of the United States because that's where we had our server capacity. And we were only able to do this because of the transatlantic fiber investments that I had been pushing for that the same people tried, that got killed, right? That they said, now we need to stop that. And so I, I remember I had come down with COVID after a, whatever reason we were down in Hoboken, New Jersey, <laughs> but we ended up, we were being we in New Jersey, Jersey Philip. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Oh yeah. It's my fault. Yeah, and okay. so, I mean, I technically not even allowed to go to New Jersey as a New Yorker, but anyway, we ended up in New Jersey for whatever reason and I got COVID. And so I'm home and I text my boss because we were supposed to have a meeting and I'm like, Hey, I'm not feeling well. I didn't really want to tell anybody about COVID at the time. So he ends up calling me and he's like, Hey. I just wanted to tell you that you were right. And I was like, well, I'm right about what? He's like, no, 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 don't, don't make me say it. I was like, no, 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 no. You have to say it because of everything that I went through. And he goes, you were right. We should have never stopped investing in that fiber. I was wrong. I apologize. Can, what can we do? How do we fix this? And so there was a very short window there where all of these theoretical things became reality and the floodgates started to open for us to kind of reinvigorate this program of the investments that we were looking to make and partnerships that we could do. And I guess like for me, just the, one of the learnings was a couple of things. I needed to learn to do a better job at what my job actually is. And I think one of my key jobs is to get everybody in the boat saying the same thing. And whether people agree with you or not, or whether they like you or not, or whatever the case may be, Part of my job is, especially in Microsoft with such a big business, it's getting everybody rallied around what your vision is and where, what you're trying to do and getting them to say the same thing. And I didn't do that so well when I started, right? I think I was maybe just a little young and cocky and whatnot, but I learned very much. It's the more people you have behind you saying, yes, 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 that's what we need to do. The less you have to say it and the things just move much better. And so. I learned that one. And then I learned that if you truly believe in something and you truly believe that that's the right thing to do for you, your business, whatever it is, stick to your principles. I hate fair weather fans, right? Like I love, I love the Yankees. They were terrible this year, but I didn't turn on the world series because I wanted to root for the Rangers or something like that. Right? Like, even though they ended up getting Jordan Montgomery, who we should have never gotten rid of, but there are a million reasons I, not I, to turn on the world series. The yeah. Rangers performance is the least of it. 
Yeah, but I just feel like I learned to really follow your principles and follow your approach and try to stick to it. Because I think you can always then hold your head up high in whatever you do. And even if you're wrong, people will be like, he was wrong. But there's a certain level of integrity to do something in that way. And I, and I try to very much operate with a lot of respect and integrity. And I think that's helped me. For everyone other than a people lot in Jersey. Yes. <laughs> well, th those are but, some really heartwarming lessons. It's amazing that I didn't have to ask any of those questions. <laughs> it's like you knew the script, you knew the questions that we were going to be asking. So that's amazing. What would you say, knowing what you know today, are some of the major key takeaways when you look at your career and your life that you would want the younger generation to follow? And potentially that you introduce to your own daughters yeah. as they look on to, I can't, I don't know if they're interested in, in technology at all, given the fact that they think that you plug toilets for a living. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm well, our, oldest is, our oldest is studying computer science at Carnegie Mellon, so she's oh, trying. Oh my god! Oh my god! That's twenty percent right there. That's it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I guess the one thing I would say for me, the key thing is, and one of our other daughters, she asked me as well, like, what's the secret to being successful? And I was like, I don't know why you're asking me that question, but okay, no. But I said, there's no magic. It's just hard work. You just have to work hard. Right. And I would say like, so some of the lessons, if that's for that question, be ready to put the work in. And if you're passionate about it, it won't feel like work, but there's just no substitute for elbow grease, right? Rolling your sleeves up and getting into it and dissecting things and really putting in the effort. Right. And again, that's true of work or baseball or whatever you're doing, right? A parent and, and whatnot. So this is the first thing. Second, I would say is Everybody today has an incredible access to information that we never had growing up, right? Like for me, the coolest thing was the long extent, the long cord on the phone in the kitchen. So I could go and talk on the phone in the living room, right? But now like with the internet and all this information, we learn a lot and we have access to a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know them. So experiencing things and learning things and knowing things, you have to put that effort in. And so like listening more and learning more, even if you think about it because you watched a one hour long documentary on YouTube or something, there's no substitute for experience. So listen and, and try things out. That's the best way to learn. And then I think it's one of the other thing I would say is really, if you are the smartest person in the room that you're in, you are in the wrong room, right? You definitely do not try to be the smartest person in the room. Surround yourself with super smart people, surround yourself with experts that know the things that you don't know and let them do their job, right? And that's coming from let the valedictorian of the class of 93. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Who was technically not the smartest person. That was not the criteria. I did not have the highest grade point average for my high school. But yeah, so like I really tried to do that. I tried to make sure that I have a strong team and the other part of my job is really just trying to empower them and enable them to do the, the work that they're capable of doing and removing blockers and getting out of their way, right? I tell them often, even though it sounds super trite, but I, I work for them, 
Like just yesterday, we had a situation where we're promoting somebody in the team. And so there's a blurb about the promotion and leadership was like, hey, this isn't work. Like this isn't good enough. Right. And the guy in my team, he's on vacation. So I went in and I spoke with the person they were promoting and I made a couple of tweaks and, and he was like, wow, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I wasn't going to be able to get to it. But and I was like, yeah, of course, but I got your back. Like that's what I'm here for to help get those things unblocked and do those things so you can be on vacation. And I'm a workaholic. And I work use, crazy. And if you use teams, you're probably getting hold of them. That's holiday. it. Yeah. It was all done on teams, <laughs> I will say. So no, but I, I also try to tell my team, like, I love what I do. So I work a lot, much to the chagrin of my wife. I try to manage that as well as I can, but I do tell people, I don't really believe in work-life balance. I believe more in work-life fluidity. I do not work a nine to five job. Like the network is going 24 seven all around the world. So something is always happening. So I can't just have a nine to five job, but I tell my team, you will see emails from me on the weekend. You will see messages from me at very odd hours of the day here in New York, but that's how it works for me. It doesn't mean you have to reply. Many times I put no need for a weekend reply in my weekend emails because I don't want people to feel the need that because I write something that they feel obligated to respond. Like everybody needs to find what that work life framework is that works for them in the situation that they're in. And I tell my team all the time, I don't care if you start at 10 or you leave at four or you do both. And if you can do that, please tell me, because I would love to know the magic, that trick that you pulled to have that happen. But whatever works for you, that's what you do it. What I just care that we get the job done and we get the work done and we deliver for our customers and, and that we deliver what we're supposed to deliver to the business. How we do that, everybody needs to figure out for themselves. Right? Well, that's amazing. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your story and sharing your wisdom as well. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I'm pretty sure when your daughters listen to this podcast, they will have a great idea of what you really do. You're not just a glorified plumber. You are But I will a come down to Montclair, New Jersey with my, right. with, oh man, now I even forget the name, my plunger. I'm going to come down right. to Montclair with totally my plunger, Philip. Hopefully, hopefully, you. hopefully you don't get diseased like the last time you came down to Jersey. I'll, yeah, I'll exactly. make sure to wear my mask. <laughs> Thank you so much, Frank. This is incredible. And I see a future mayoral run for, uh, sure. for no, Sleepy no. Hollow. I'm good. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Politics is way too dirty. The, Kennedy, the Kennedys of Sleepy Hollow. The race, oh, could the race you imagine me running a campaign that I, and having lived in Germany? Like I could see the that's socialist why you need, headline. That's why, I'm that's done. Why, that's it. That's I why you need a Jewish campaign manager. There's one in Montclair that's ready, <laughs> that's ready to work. I love it. That's, All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate Thank it. You Thank you for the invitation and taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. you. Take care. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing, as well as your continued support.